Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church and OCCathome.com. We are so glad you're here. At OCC, our mission is to invite people to take their next steps with Jesus. And so we pray that through our time together, you're encouraged and challenged to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Well, hello, Orange Crest. It's a privilege to be able to speak with you today. In this message series called Peel that you're in, you've been asking this important question, and that's this. If your life was like a piece of fruit that was peeled, would it be bitter or would it be sweet? Now, it's whenever we face the pressures of life that our life is, is peeled, and people get to experience not just what we project on the outside, but what's really true of us on the inside. And what comes out in those moments is either something really sweet and blessing to other people, or it's something that's, that's really bitter. Now, left to ourselves, we will just turn bitter, kind of like a piece of fruit. You pick a piece of fruit, you set it there, and you leave it, and over time, it's going to rot, and it's going to become bitter. And that's kind of the way we are, apart from God's help. And so it's whenever we restore our broken relationship with God through Jesus Christ that we're reattached to the kind of life that he grows. In the life of the Holy Spirit, his spirit begins to flow into our life, and over time, it grows some, some pretty sweet, some pretty amazing fruit. And the list of this fruit that you've been working your way through is found in the book of Galatians in the New Testament. And here's what we read in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, up to this point, you have considered... The qualities of fruit, the character qualities that I think everyone would agree are, are really good and really valuable and everyone would like. But today we turn our attention to a particular quality that very few people value and very few people are striving for, and that is the quality of gentleness. Gentleness is not a quality that you find listed on a resume. It's not something of value to our culture. We've been taught that if you want to get ahead in life, you need to be aggressive. You need to be assertive, not gentle. But according to Jesus, it's the gentle that really get further ahead in life over time. In the New Testament, this one Greek word that's translated gentle here can really be translated into two English words, either gentleness or meekness. And so this is what Jesus said about this very same word in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. He said, blessed are the meek or the gentle. It's the same word that's used here for they will inherit the earth. Now, that just doesn't make any sense to us. How is it possible that someone who's gentle is going to inherit the earth? Now, Webster defines meek this way, deficient in spirit and courage, not strong, mild. So in our culture, in our language, we tend to equate meekness or gentleness with weakness. The meek are timid. The gentle are timid, fearful people. They are the ones in our mind that just let people walk all over them. And the reason is because they're just too afraid to stand up for themselves. But that is not the definition of meek that we find in the pages of the Bible. In fact, some of the strongest, most powerful people in the Bible were praised for their meekness. One of them was Moses, who led the children of Israel out of captivity. Here's what it says about him in Numbers 12, verse 3. It says, now the man Moses was very meek or gentle, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Now, this was meant to be a compliment to Moses, but we don't read it that way. 
Now, no one would accuse Moses of being weak. I mean, you don't confront Pharaoh like Moses did, Pharaoh, the, the leader of the most powerful empire on earth, if you're weak. And you certainly can't lead two million people through the desert with limited resources for 40 years if you're a weak person. You've got to be a strong leader to do that. So what then does it mean to be gentle or, or to be meek? Well, the Bible and Webster, the English language, we both agree on what meekness and gentleness looks like on the surface. A meek or a gentle person is calm and, and consistent in their demeanor on the outside. They're characterized not by emotional outbursts, but by a calm response to the pressures of life. They don't manipulate people. They're able to listen to people. They are gentle and mild, especially in how they treat people and especially when they face pressure. So both the English and the Bible languages agree on, on what meekness looks like on the surface. The difference comes when you look below the surface and ask the question, what is it that's causing that calmness on the outside? The English definition assumes that it's because they are weak on the inside. They are calm on the outside or gentle on the outside because they simply lack the strength or the courage to advance their agenda, which is why they don't advance their agenda. But the Greek word that's used here in this verse and in the Bible points to a different reason that's driving the, the calmness and the gentleness on the outside. This word was used in the time for ranchers who would um, break a wild horse. That's the word they would use to describe the horse after it had been broken. Sailors would often use this word to describe the gentle breeze. It's ideal for sailing. In both of these situations, calmness was present not because of a lack of strength. You know, the wind can come in hurricane form as well as in a helpful form that pushes boats that have sails. A wild horse has tremendous strength, but it can't really be useful if it's wild. It needs to be tamed in order for it to be productive. So in order for us to be helpful, not destructive, the power that God has given each one of us needs to have limits set on it. And that's the idea of gentleness in the Bible. So this is the definition of gentleness from the Bible's perspective. Gentleness in the Bible is strength under control. It's strength under control. A gentle person is not a weak person. They have put limits on their strengths so that their lives can be helpful rather than damaging. They could express all kinds of power, but they know that that's destructive. So they have put limits on the power of their lives. Now, these limits for the gentle show up usually in three very important areas. We're going to look at those today. The first limit that is characterized by the gentle person is the people limit. The people limit. What I mean by that is the gentle accept the fact that they have no control over the people in their lives. And that keeps them from trying to push people around and trying to manipulate them. So they're gentle because they understand there's, there's a limit when it comes to relating to other people. And they honor that limit. In the book of 2 Timothy in the New Testament, we read this verse. It's written to a young pastor about how to respond to to those who are upset and opposing him in this particular church. Here's what is read to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. It says, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Now, people opposition, of course, is not limited to churches. The opposition between people occurs in every part of life. Every place you find people working together 
you're going to find eventually opposition. It occurs in marriages. It occurs in families. It occurs on the job, and it definitely occurs in politics. You put two people in a room, and they will eventually oppose each other. Now, whenever there's opposition, whenever there's conflict between people, the, the two common responses are these. Either you're aggressive, you really push hard to get your way, or you're passive and you let the other person have their way. God offers a third option, and that option is gentleness. Now, if there's only two people in a dispute, you can only have winners or losers. That's why people either decide to be the loser and be passive or be the winner and be aggressive. So the aggressive wins, the passive lose. But gentleness recognizes a third party, a third person in every dispute, in every opposition. And that third person is God himself. Now, what role does God have in the disagreements that we have between ourselves? Well, as it says in this verse we just read, he is the one who grants repentance. To repent means to change your mind, to, to change course in life. Now, we tend to think that we have the power to convince people to do what we want them to do. Or as we like to often call it, what, what they really should be doing. But all we really can do, according to this verse, is instruct other people, which means explain to them what we think about the matter. Our words do not have the power to change anyone. I want you to notice the order in this verse. First, we instruct. Second thing that happens is God grants repentance. The third thing that happens is they come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, we tend to think that there's a straight line between our instruction and their knowledge of the truth. We just take out that middle section about God granting repentance. That's why we usually don't gently instruct. We aggressively instruct if we need to. Now, this right here is a life-changing perspective. That is to recognize that God is the one who changes hearts. He's the one who grants repentance. We can't do that. In disagreements, both sides try to instruct the other side about how they're wrong. And what usually happens when that occurs? Well, both sides just dig in. They get more and more upset. The emotions go up and the gentleness goes down. Now, we tend to assume that the other person is just not listening because if they would just hear us, they would change in the way that we're saying that they should change. So we tend to turn up the volume to really help them listen more. And then they do the same thing. And gentleness goes out the window. But the truth is, the reason they haven't changed is because God has not granted repentance yet. It's not because we haven't said it clearly enough or because we haven't said it loudly enough. It's because God hasn't granted repentance. Now, why hasn't God granted repentance? Well, we never know exactly why he hasn't. Often it has a lot to do with the particular person's orientation towards him and whether they're really trying to listen to God or not. But it's a good thing that God is the only one who grants repentance because the truth is we can be wrong. Oftentimes when we're thinking they're wrong, there may be something there, but there's often something on our side that we're really wrong that we're not seeing. And so the knowledge that God is the one that grants repentance, that frees us up. It's a life-changing perspective that frees us up to be gentle with people and leave the changing of people's job to God himself. I want you to think of someone that you would really like to see change in some way. Now, my guess is as you think of this person, you've probably already tried to do everything you can to bring about change in their life. 
And my guess, secondly, is that you're probably pretty frustrated because it just hasn't worked. Why? It's because God has put an invisible border around every person, around every human heart. And what that means is I don't get to decide what you do and the decisions you make for the same reason I don't get to vote in the next Canadian elections. There's a border between our nation and our nation to the north. And on the other side of that border is a sovereign nation. Now, we can visit Canada, but we don't get a vote. We don't, we don't control the decisions that that nation makes. They make those decisions, not us. And it's the same kind of thing with people. There is a border between us. The problem is that when it comes to national borders, there's usually distance between countries. But when it comes to people borders, there really isn't a lot of distance. Sometimes we are living with people that we really would like to see changed. And what that means is their mess, their choices, their decisions impact us. And our life, honestly, in many cases, would be better if some of the people in our life would just change. And that's why we try to invade their lives and we try to change them. Harshness really is a cross-border personal invasion. It's an attempt to violate the sovereignty of a individual and their right to make their own decisions and to, and to get them to do what we want them to do. Now, there, of course, are no visible fences that mark the border between me and somebody else and you and somebody else. But God has installed a, a kind of an internal alarm that goes off every time we cross the people border. And actually, there's an internal alarm that we're going to look at every time we cross the other borders that we're going to look at this morning. Now, this, this alarm is not an audible alarm. It's an emotional alarm. We feel these alarms go off on the inside, and that's God's way of letting us know something, something's wrong. There's a border that's been crossed. There's a line that we've, a limit that we've crossed over, and we need to get back on our side of the fence, our side of the border. Now, the alarm for whenever we cross the people limit is anger. Anger occurs whenever we try to violate someone's sovereignty and their freedom to make their own decisions. In anger, we justify an invasion. And, of course, how do they respond? Well, they respond in anger themselves. Now, whenever you feel the alarm of anger against somebody else going off, there's a couple of things that you can do to, first of all, make sure that this alarm is accurate, and then you can get back on your side of the border. And so for each of these limits, we're going to look at two solutions right after the alarm that goes off. These are the two solutions once we cross the people border. The first solution is to begin to pray for them. If God grants repentance, what that means is we can ask him to change other people. That's a much better way to go about people change than us trying to manipulate or trying to say harsh words to try to convince them to change. We just need to go straight to the source of change and ask God to change their hearts. I've found that it's really hard to hold on to anger for someone and pray for them at the same time. Those two just don't go together. So if I'm really angry at somebody and they're not doing what I think they should do and they're not changing the way I think they should change, if I can begin to pray for them, the anger begins to decide because I'm, I'm now stepping back on the right side of that limit. I'm recognizing the fact that God is the one that grants change, not me. The second solution is remember your weakness. Whenever you're angry with someone, it's often because you've forgotten the challenges in your own life. And you're expecting more out of them than maybe even you expect out of yourself. We cease to be gentle with others when we forget how weak all of us are. 
In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, there's a verse that talks about the high priests in the Old Testament portion of the Bible and and why in God's wisdom he had set up frail human beings to represent him to people. Here's what we read in Hebrews 5 verse 2. Says he, speaking of the high priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray. Why? Well, since he himself is subject to weakness. We know personally how hard it is to change because we've tried to change in many areas of life and we've failed. And it's as we recognize our weaknesses, we can be more gentle with other people because they're struggling in the same way we've struggled. So that's the people limit. The gentle stay on their side of the fence when it comes to interacting with people. The second limit is the work limit, the work limit. The gentle accept the fact not only that they don't control the people in their lives, they don't control how much work they can accomplish in any given day or any given year. Now, the purpose of work, of course, is to get things done. That's why you get paid. That's how you make a profit. Things are accomplished. But in a broken and fallen world like this, Sin keeps getting in the way. What that means is there's all kinds of problems that get in the way of getting things done, of checking things off your to-do list. And as the problems mount that get in the way of us accomplishing what we want to accomplish from a work standpoint, gentleness tends to fade as we really feel the pressure of getting a lot done. And the reason is because harshness seems to be a shortcut to getting more done on our to-do list. I remember a long time ago when I worked in advertising before I came to Seabreeze to pastor this church. One of the things I discovered early on as I worked in that job is there was just a lot of pressure, a lot of deadlines. And I discovered that people respond to harshness. I noticed that if someone were to yell, people who heard them yell would stop immediately whatever they were doing. And they would turn and they would listen to whatever this person was saying. If the person just spoke generally, everyone would keep on doing what they're doing. But if they yelled, if they were harsh, boy, that got everyone's attention. And I also noticed if they actually started swearing, well, then people would start moving. They would start acting on whatever was being said. So I began to try that a little bit, not the swearing part, but kind of the harshness. I I would raise my voice a little bit, and I discovered, boy, it really works. People really pay attention when you get harsh. And I began to notice this with my kids. Our two kids were young at the time. And kids, of course, if you're a parent, you know this. They're a tremendous blessing and a lot of fun. But they come with a lot of challenges and a lot of problems. I mean, just trying to get kids out of the door and into a car in a timely manner sometimes can just seem like an impossible task. And so I found myself applying what I was learning from the advertising business to family life. And I began to raise my voice to kind of meet the challenges of getting the kids to do what they really needed to do. And like at work, it had an immediate effect. They would pay attention and they would start scrambling. But then I noticed in both realms, family realm and in work realm, I noticed that there was a a drop-off, that the harshness benefit had a big drop-off over time. And there was not a long-term benefit that came with it. In the work environment, people would scramble whenever someone would get harsh. But eventually what happened over time is they would start avoiding the people that were known to be harsh. They didn't want to get around them. They would see them coming and they would just walk a different direction. No one, I noticed, ever asked a harsh person to help them solve an important problem. So the harsh people eventually became pretty isolated. And no one ever trusted the harsh. If the harsh were in authority, that person just really didn't know what was going on under them because no one wanted to be honest. Because they didn't want to risk the 
you know, a big blow up. It's the same with kids. They learn how to shut down in the face of raised voices and emotional outbursts. And they do not trust the parents who are not kind to them, who are harsh instead. So how are we supposed to get things done if, if we can't use harshness as kind of a, a whip to get people moving? How are we supposed to get more done? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul addresses an argument over which of these two leaders in the church, himself or Apollos, should get more credit for the work that was done to accomplish the planting and the growth of this church in the city of Corinth. And here's what Paul says to this question in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 6. He says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. This is a a very important template for how God accomplishes the work that he wants done here on earth. The first thing that God does is he assigns a goal that's too big for any one person to accomplish. That's why he's created us to team together to accomplish the important things in life. So firstly, God sets a goal that's too big for us to accomplish on our own. The second thing he does is he breaks down that goal into individual tasks and deals the assignments to the individual people who can then work together to accomplish this goal. Now, the desired outcome in this particular case, in these verses, was that people would come to know Christ and this church would grow as a result of it. Now, God broke this task that was too big for any one person down into particular assigned task. In this case, Paul was the one who planted the seed. What that means is he's the one who first shared the gospel with the people in Corinth. But then Apollos came through and spent several years watering that seed and helping people understand what that meant and how to grow once they'd made a decision to follow Christ. Now, there, in fact, were many more tasks than just what Paul did and what Apollos did in order for this church to move forward and people's lives to be changed. Just the two tasks are being talked about here, just kind of as an example. Now, the Corinthians wanted to give all the credit to either Paul or to Paulus. But Paul, who's writing this letter to them, says, no, you're missing the whole point. God is the one who pulls things together and allows things to happen. He's the one that sees to the fact that work gets done. Now, the purpose of work, then, is not to get what I want to get done in any given day. It's fine to have goals, but that's not the real purpose of work. The real purpose of work is to make sure you're clear on your assignment and to do your assignment well. That's the clear goal of work. Now, the alarm that occurs whenever we cross this this work limit, the alarm is the alarm of stress. Now, strain is fine. That's just part of meaningful work. That's why work is hard. But stress, this sense of being overwhelmed, that occurs whenever we take on too much work and too much responsibility for how much gets done. And that occurs either because we're not clear on what the overall goal is that we're a part of, what God wants us to be done, and we're now starting to add our goals on top of God's goal, or we're not clear on what our part is, what our assignment is, and we're taking on more than we should. Then we're going to be stressed. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 29. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am, and there's that word, gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle 
and humble in heart. What that means is that he gives us assignments. He gives us work to do, not to overwhelm us, but to include us in the important work that he's doing. And if we are overwhelmed, if we are stressed out of our mind, it's because we've gotten something off, either our understanding of the goal or our understanding of what our part in that goal is. Two of my granddaughters love making cookies with my wife. Here's a picture of them. They're actually just more licking the batter than anything else here. But if you were to ask my granddaughters to describe this cooking-making process, it would sound like they did everything. There's no mention of anything that my wife did. But if you ask my wife to describe, so tell me how these cookies were actually made, she will tell you that what my granddaughters did were two things. They licked the spoon and they pressed down on the cookie dough when it was on the cookie sheets. That's it. That's really kind of all they accomplished. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, if you listen to us talk about our work and listen to us talk about what we've accomplished, it kind of sounds like the same thing. You talk to us, and it's like, oh, we, we've done everything. Look at all that we've accomplished. But if you, you step back behind the scenes and you ask God, so God, could you give me a sense of how this really happened? We would have the sense that, you know, really what we were doing was licking the dough and pressing down the cookie batter. That's, I mean, we have a part of it, but we're not the ones that really make things happen. God's the one that gets work done, the work that he wants to see get done. We're just pressing down the cookie dough. So God loves us, and he wants us to have a meaningful part of the work that he wants done in this world. That's the reason my wife included my granddaughters, because she loves them, and she wants them to be a part of this cookie-making process. That's why God gives us meaningful work to be done. Not because he can't do it, but it's a privilege for us to be a part of that. So what's the solution when we find ourselves stressed and overwhelmed? There's two questions that we need to ask whenever we're stressed. The first question is, what is God's goal in this? The question really is, have I gone beyond the limits of what God wants done here? And am I now beginning to add my own goals on top of this? Because if I'm adding my own goals, then that's why I'm stressed. I'm, I'm doing more than God really wants done here. The second question then, once we're clear on what God's goal is, is what is my task within that goal? What's my task? What's God's assignment for me in this? Have I gone beyond those limits Have I added to that task? Have I seen someone maybe not doing their task and decided, well, I can do that too? Well, of course, then I'm going to be stressed because I'm doing more than God has assigned me to do. So if the answer is yes to one or both of these questions, that's why the stress alarm is going off. And it's time to retreat back within the work limits of what God wants accomplished and what my assignment in that accomplishment is. Now let's look at the third limit. That is the time limit. The gentle not only accept the fact that they can't control the people in their lives, they don't have absolute control over how much work gets done. Thirdly, they accept the fact that they have no control at all over the future. Now, my wife can always tell whenever I'm worried about something that might happen in the future. The first evidence is I get short with her. I stop listening very well. I I start using short kind of staccato answers in response to her, and all of that is to kind of push her away because I'm focused on concern for the future about something. Whenever we become concerned about the future, what happens is we lack the focus that's necessary for us to be gentle in the moment because our mind isn't there. Our mind is thinking about what might be rather than what's in front of us right now. Gentleness requires us to accept our 24-hour limit, and that is today. 
That's the time limit that we've been given. All we have is today. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5 through 6, says something interesting about gentleness. It says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, these are not three separate statements. This is not be gentle, statement number one, God is near, statement number two, don't worry, statement number three. These three statements are linked together. The idea is this, whenever our gentleness becomes evident to people around us, it's because we have become convinced that the Lord is near. Those two are linked together. Well, does God kind of come and go from our lives? Does he visit us occasionally and then go off on a long trip and leave us on our own? No. God is always near. The problem is we forget that fact. And the evidence of forgetting the fact that God is near is we cease to be gentle. These two are linked together. If God is not real or he's so far away that he really can't be of any real help to me right now, then I can't take my mind off of what might happen in the future, enough to be gentle in the present. Now, the emotional alarm that goes off whenever we cross the time border, the time limit, is the emotion of worry. I mean, if if we could see God standing right next to us right now, and every day and every moment as we face the challenges, there would be no rational reason for us to worry. If we're convinced that God is near today, not just because it's a temporary special visit, but it's a daily reality, then we'd be able to focus on staying with inside of what we're supposed to do today. Then we could go about today's challenges without worrying about tomorrow. But we struggle to recognize the time limit that God has placed on us. We struggle to do this. And whenever we do that, we cease to be gentle. So when that alarm goes off, there's a couple of steps, solutions you can take to step back within the daily time border that God has given us. The first solution is make a petition list. That's what this verse goes on to say. Don't worry. Instead, make a list of your worries and make that a petition. Make that a prayer to God. Get specific about what you're worrying about. This is so helpful because whenever you worry, it's, it's kind of like this big giant ball of emotion and it's really not clear what it is you're worrying about. So stop and think, what is it that I'm worried about? Is it one thing? Is it three things? Is it five things? What are they? List them out. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. I'm worried that this might happen. Make a list. And then turn that list into a prayer list. Go through that list and say, God, I ask for your help with this. That act brings God close in our minds. Now, God's already close, but we forget that. But it's as we pray, we recognize God is near. And that begins to grant us the peace that guards our hearts and our minds in a way that only Christ Jesus can do that, as it says. After we've made the petition list and we've prayed this list, then we need to turn that list into a gratitude list. The very same list. We need to thank God for the things on that list. Now, how does that make sense? Why, it seems like thanks is something that follows an outcome. But this implies that we take what we're worried about. We ask God for help, and before we've even seen whether there's any help or not, we thank God. This is all one, one prayer. So why do we thank God before we've seen whether or not we've gotten help in this area? Well, first of all, the reason we thank is because every item that we are worried about is, in fact, something that we also should be grateful about. For example, if you're worried about your kids, you know what that means? You have kids. That's something to be grateful 
If you're worried about paying your mortgage, you know what that means? You're a homeowner. That is something to be grateful for. Everything we're worried about, if you're worried about your health, you know what that means? You're alive. That's something to be grateful for. So take the things you're worried about and be grateful for those things. But the other thing that gratitude does is it allows us to thank God before the fact. And this acknowledges our realization that God is in control of the future. We're thanking him before we even know what the outcome is, but we know the outcome is his hands and we trust him. We thank God in advance because we realize we don't control the future and he does. Now, what Jesus said about the future is really true. This is what he said back in Matthew again. He said, it's the meek that inherit the earth. At first, that didn't make any sense until you recognize what an inheritance is. Inheritance is about receiving benefits, not in the near term, but in the distant future. If you have an inheritance coming your way, it's probably years away, maybe even decades away before you will experience that inheritance. And that's like the benefits of gentleness. You don't see the benefits of gentleness necessarily in the near term. There are some, but most of the benefits of gentleness occur in the distant future, the inheritance future. It takes decades to see the fruit of gentleness grow in a life. But if you stay in one place long enough and you watch people, you will see the inheritance of the gentle. You will see them inherit the kinds of friends that everybody wishes they had. You'll see them inherit the kinds of marriages that everybody wishes they had. You'll see them make the kind of impact that everybody wants to make. You'll see a generational legacy flow out of their gentleness that everyone walking this planet longs to make. You see, if God is near, then you can be gentle today. Not because the future is problem-free or because everyone is doing what they should do or because everything you'd like to get done is getting done. No, because you know the owner of the future and of this place. You know the one who's in control and who is in charge And he's the one that dispenses inheritance-level blessing. So what's the loudest alarm going off in your heart right now? Is it the anger alarm? Is it the stress alarm? Is it the worry alarm? Whatever one's going off, start there. And take those two steps to begin to step back inside the limit of what God has set on us so that you can begin to be gentle. Now, you might say, you know, I'm kind of like that parking lot where all the alarms are going off. All three of these alarms are going off. Well, I would encourage you to start with the people category. Start with that area. Because if you can make progress in accepting the fact that you don't control what people do, you have made the first big step towards gentleness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that so many times you have been gentle to us. You have been patient with us. We thank you that we now can be gentle as we interact with people in our lives, as we take on meaningful work, and as we look to a very uncertain future. We don't need to respond with harshness. We don't need to respond with worry or anger or stress. We have the chance to be gentle. Father, I pray that you would help us to get back within the the limits and the borders that you have set for us so that we might, over time, inherit the kind of blessing that you give to those who are gentle. Help us grow this fruit through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. 
Visit us online at occathome.com to learn more about how to connect with us. And join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast. Have a great day.